You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. First hitting the country top 20 in 1979 with crazy blue eyes, Lacey J. Dalton was one of the most successful female vocalists of the format during the 80s with the CMA-nominated anthem, 16th Avenue, as well as hits like Taking It Easy, Everybody Makes Mistakes, and Black Coffee, just to name a few. Well, during her career, she has collaborated with such Country Music Hall of Fame members, Bobby Bear, Glenn Campbell, Willie Nelson, and George Jones. She's also toured with the outlaws like Hank Williams Jr. at a time when it was very unusual for a woman to do so but she also toured for a very long time with Willie Nelson and was the only female female on his Half Nelson album. And Lacey J. Dalton is a 2017 inductee of the North American Country Music Association International Hall of Fame. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the country music living legend herself, Lacey J. Dalton. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Ward. I am pleased to be here. Well, I want to just kind of go back in time here because you had such an interesting history. What was the spark that ignited your desire to pursue to pursue music? Well, I didn't. Uh, I actually was the unmusical one in my musical family. <laughs> don't you dare say anything. <laughs> don't even think that. But anyway, um, uh, my mom and dad and sister all played country music. My dad played all the stringed instruments. And um, I used to, I remember sitting under this great big oak table in the kitchen and sitting up against the uh, pillar in the middle and just listening to them. But I didn't join in for the longest time. I never actually picked up the guitar until I was about 17. And then when I did that, I strayed from the flock and uh fell in love with the music of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Janis Joplin and, you know, the Jefferson Airplane. It broke my father's heart because my father's favorite song was, Give me 40 acres and I'll turn this rig around. Wow. So anyway, after he got used to the minor chords in my music, we, uh, we saw eye to eye after that. But um, that's how I got started. It was uh, just kind of falling into it because that's I've just we always had instruments around: mandolins, guitars, banjos, uh, pianos, and um, they still they played uh, from almost all their lives. Well, well, let me ask you this because you ended up in San Francisco in the 1960s, actually performing, which I was really kind of surprised, psychedelic rock with a band known as Office. Now, how did you go? from a psychedelic rock to being a country singer? Well, because country music was so natural to me, it was something that I'd heard, and it was really all I'd heard besides Perry Como <laughs> for most of my life. I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, right way up at the tip of the Appalachian Mountains. So there was a heavy country in, you know, influence everywhere. But we also had uh, Rosemary Clooney and Perry Como and some of those folks. So we, uh, there were a lot of influences early on in my music, and, and very early on, I made a friend with a record collector whose name was Jim Slifer, and I uh, had a boyfriend named Eric Oberg, who uh, was a, they were musicologists, young men, but the, uh, Slifer had this huge record collection of people like Robert Johnson, and um, you know, we went back through Lead Belly and all the, the you know, roots music, then began to listen to some of the, you know, more modern blues, Turner Ray and Glover and things like that, and up into rock. And at some point in that um, period of time, I was selling jewelry at the county fair for Big Joe Ryan. And across the way was a long-haired hippie dude selling um, psychedelic posters. Well, come to find out he was the guitar player. And we fell in whatever love, I guess, and decided that we were going to run off to the West Coast and be flower children. So we did. And that's how I ended up actually in Santa Cruz, California, where I actually spent most of my adult life. And that's a wonderful place to land if you're a musician, because there is a wonderful music school there. Um, there are two, actually. 
Um, one of them is Cabrillo Junior College and then University of Santa Cruz is there. And you had people like Neil Young and you had people like uh, the Jefferson Airplane just right up the road. You had a lot of, um, you know, we had Merle Haggard right down the road. I mean, it was a melting pot and there it still is a wonderful. There are more musicians in Santa Cruz than people. Well, so it was you, a great <laughs> Well, you know, that kind of gives me a thought here, Lacey, because, you know, to me, the 1960s and the 1970s is probably actually contains the best songwriting, the best record producing, and those are the songs that we still remember today. It's the songs that get people interested in music. How would you compare the music back then to what we're hearing today? Well, I think it depends what kind of music you're listening to. I, you know, a lot of listeners now don't just listen to one kind of music. They listen to all kinds of music. So there's some very good writing now in all kinds of music. And I think there's value in every genre, you know, including some of the really far out stuff, like even the, the really bizarre jazz that they have. Have you ever seen a, a new jazz chart, music chart for new jazz? It looks like some kind of a drawing by a, you know, a, a crazy artist. But the some of the music that is happening now, I think, is just as valid. It's not just not as familiar yet. And I think it's with familiarity, we really learn to love the music that we love because it means more than just a song. It means, gee, that was when I met so-and-so and we danced all night and later on we married and had three kids. You know, I mean, it's. I think music is that kind of a thing. It's kind of a language uh, all its own. I, I was very fortunate because uh, it was really the outlaws that brought me back to country music. It was Waylon and Willie and the boys. <laughs> and so I was so fortunate in my career because uh, those are the people I got to tour with, you know, with Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard for long periods of time. I even played the, <laughs> David Allen Coe's wife in a movie called Take This Job and Shove It. So I was always traveling with the outlaws um, Hank Jr. I traveled with for about a year and a half with a big Southern rock and roll band, and I had the best. That, oddly enough, as wild a guy as Hank Jr. is, he had the most professional stage I have ever been on in my life. There was If you did a bad show on that stage, it was your fault <laughs> because there was a guitar tech there. If your guitar was out of tune, he'd come right up, take your guitar, and put another guitar on. You could always hear perfectly. He had an incredibly crack crew, and um, his band at the time was the Kentucky Headhunters, and it was just we just had a wonderful time touring together. And I was very grateful to tour with those people. It was songs like "The Highwayman" and "Poncho and Lefty" and "Good Hearted Woman." Those in a country boy will survive. Those were the songs that brought me back to country music. And that's still the country music that I love, is the outlaw kind of stuff that's, that goes on. Well, when you toured with, let's say, the outlaws, uh, did you learn anything from them that uh, added to your career? <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what. I, I, from Hank Jr., I learned the better your stage is, if you can afford to have a really professional stage, you are going to have the best show you can have every single night. You know, with some of them I learned, Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson absolutely know who they are. They and Waylon Jennings. Waylon, I'll never forget following Waylon into Billy Bob's. And I went back in the dressing room and I was just the first act after Waylon had just been there. And on the wall it said, Waylon, by God, Jennings. And that's how those guys were. They knew who they were. They knew what they wanted to say to people. And they said it in a down-home way that everybody could understand. And it affected my writing very, very much. Uh, Chris Christopherson, um, my very favorite singer-songwriter ever, uh, still to this day, huge influence. And I got to tour with uh, Chris and Johnny Cash and the great Bobby Bear. Uh, on a European tour sometime in the 80s. And that was the most wonderful tour of all, I think, uh, because I was so appreciative of some of the writing that went on. Some of those folks really know how to write a song that's going to live forever. Yeah, I mean, and those are, I mean, everybody you mentioned, they're just huge icons. And, and to know that 
you know, who you are as an artist. I mean, even Johnny Cash knew who he was. And, Absolutely. You know, and, you know, and I understand that you had uh, toured with, well, of course, you said Hank Williams Jr. What did it mean to you to be one of the very, very few female opening acts for someone like that? Well, I was so I was very honored because these were the people who I most admired in country music were the outlaws. That's what brought me back to country music. I grew up with country music. I always liked country music. I knew I understood it because it's all I ever heard. But when I heard the outlaws talking about things that were unusual, like the highwaymen, you know, talking about coming back, I have I don't believe we do this just once. But to hear my heroes singing a song saying they didn't believe that either was a pretty empowering thing for me because I don't think we do this once. I think we come back lifetime after lifetime. And that's what that song, The High Woman, is all about. And a lot of the things they were talking about, uh, they talked about heavy things. Uh, uh, there was a song called Desperados Waiting for a Train about two old men waiting to die. And it was it's just beautiful. And Poncho and Lefty was the great outlaw song of all time. And it was written, I got to spend a whole day with Towns Van Zandt, the writer of that song. Um, I had the man who taught me how to write songs uh, was a man by the name of Fred Kohler. And um, he came to stay at my house for two weeks one time with Shel Silverstein. And between the two of them, I had the crash course in songwriting of life because every, I don't know what they were on. Shell wore a, uh, an Indian bedspread for the entire two weeks from my roommate's bed. It was orange and black. And he, that was, he wore that like a toga the whole time. And everything you said became a song. If you said, we have to go get the mail, that's a song. Gotta go get the mail, gotta go get the, that's the hook. And they would teach, and that's how they taught uh, they just wrote about a thousand songs while they were there. I couldn't wait till they left, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned a lot. I learned a lot from them, and I had, and they were great fun, great fun. And I'm still very dear. Fred Kohler is like a brother to me. Well, you signed with Columbia Records in 1979, and your career literally just took off like a rocket. Now, your first single was "Crazy Blue Eyes," which hit number 17 on the U.S. country charts. Now, in the same year. You were named Best New Female Vocalist at the 1979 CMA Awards. What was that time in country music like for you? Well, I was so thrilled that Crazy Blue Eyes made such an impact. And I was so grateful uh, to have that song as my first hit because I wrote it with my longest friend. My friend Mary McFadden and I have been friends since we were seven years old. And we're still friends now. And I don't even want to tell you how long that's been. <laughs> but that song was magic because we wrote that song in my little cabin up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. She was recovering from a divorce. I was I put on a pot of coffee and sat down and started to write. And I put a broomstick up underneath the. She was sleeping in the loft in the next room. And I said, Mary, get down here. You're in a perfect mood to help me write this song. We wrote that song and it was the song that, that actually we had offers from every record company. It, uh, it, was, it was just amazing. Um, and I was amazed because even we even had a, uh, an offer from the Rolling Stones to be on Mick Jagger's record company. But CBS moved the quickest and I was very glad because I got to record with the great uh, Billy Sherrill, who was the most wonderful producer I ever had and the most loving, gentle, um, supportive. He believed in me more than I believed in myself. So that was, a, that was a really wonderful start. You couldn't start any better, you couldn't have any better start than I had. And CBS Records was very good at promoting me. They were, I had some, uh, I had a manager who was very, very, he was very inexperienced, but he was very enthusiastic. And his enthusiasm, enthusiasm went a very long way to uh, getting me a really solid start in country music. But country music wasn't exactly a good fit for me. Uh, I am now, you know, I, I do singer-songwriter stuff now, and that's really what I love. That's the stuff like you might hear um, 
a Guy Clark or, a, you know, a Christofferson or someone like that. That's really what I love. And that's what I do now. And it all was a way of preparing me to know who I am so that I can write from that place of knowing, you know, I don't think you can write from that place. Well, although I Hank, Hank Williams Sr. did it and he was 12. <laughs> he wasn't very old when he wrote. But I do think it takes some living. Maybe it wasn't his first lifetime. As a, yeah. As, well, I let mean, me ask you, well, Lacey, let me ask you this. Because, you know, in 1979, every, everything took off for your career. You know, what type of added pressure comes along when you have a hit song and you start winning awards? Well, the, the award was a huge surprise to me. It was just a huge surprise. And I was so happy. I never got into music because I wanted to be a star. That was never my motivation. I got into music because I love music because it's a great way to communicate with people. It's a great way to heal people. If you have a song that and I, most of my projects all the way back were songs to give people courage and to you know, we know this is not an easy place. I don't know what we compare it to, but this world is not an easy place sometimes to be in. And sometimes we need, you know, we need to have um, some support. And that's why I that's why I did music. So the, I was so pleased to get that award because I knew it would make my mother so happy. And it did. I mean, it just was like this, the biggest thing in the world for her to get the award. And um, and I was happy for my family for that. Um, but that was, the awards were never a goal for me. And I always found, award, I'm sorry to say this, it's not a very popular thing to say, but I always found award shows very tiresome. You know, I had to go there and sit through all that. And I just, that was, um, that was not why I did music. It just wasn't. And now I get to, because of because having had that and, and had that stardom and had that big good start, I now get to do exactly what I want all the time. And that's um, that's rare. I, you know, I'm not huge and famous and wealthy or anything, but I get to say whatever I want to say in my shows. I get to sing whatever I want to sing, and I get to talk about whatever subjects I want to talk about. And I don't have to worry about anything, you know, except getting tomatoes thrown at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in 1986, you went back to your rock and roll and R&B roots with Highway Diner. How much input did the record company have back then, and was there any pushback with that album? Well, the pushback was actually uh, the record company had um, changed presidencies, and I was not able to be with Billy Sherrill anymore. I was with the new guy, and the new guy, um, I don't really think... Uh, it was a it was a very um, traditional time in country music. Ricky Skaggs was the biggest thing in the world, and the Whites, people, traditionalists. Vince Gill was even very traditional back then. You know, there were people were very traditional, and this guy said, "Well, I want you to make a populist album." And I thought, "You want that? That's not what I think we should do." But if that's what you're going, I said, "I'll make one one record for you." because I don't think you are really a fan, and I don't think you're gonna promote anything I do. Wow. But I'm gonna make the best populist record that I can possibly make, and I'm not going to be here in Nashville to make it, I'm gonna to go to Memphis. So I went to Memphis, and I made this the album Highway Diner, and it got the most insanely great reviews. I mean, the New York Times said, why aren't they promoting this record? I knew why. <laughs> because the guy didn't really, he told me himself, he said, I'm not going to, I wanted off the label immediately. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to let you go and I'm not going to compete with you. So you're going to be here for a long time. And I said, well, I may be here, but I don't have to record for you. So I didn't for four years. It was the kiss of death for a career career. Yeah. And eventually I went to uh, the next biggest guy in Nashville, who was Jimmy Bowen. And I said, Bowen, will you please do me a favor and buy me out of this record deal? Because I am just dying on the vine here. I've got a little boy to support. I'm a single woman. My husband, I was widowed early. And I've got this little boy to support. And I have to be out on the road. And I can't work because I don't have any promotion behind me. So Bowen took me, I think, out of pity. <laughs> but he um, 
he thought he always thought I was too old. You know, there was a big this big thing about oh, you're too old. You know, you're. Uh, it was a huge thing when I first got my first record. I was 33. I was ancient. <laughs> Even the New York Times made a big deal of how old I was. So there was always that age discrimination. Well, with Bowen, Bowen had all these boutique uh, labels. And I would, he would, we went through, I think, four of them together. We'd make a record, leave it behind. Nobody would promote it because we weren't there. And we'd go to his next boutique label. <laughs> and we'd make a very expensive record. They got left behind. Nobody's ever heard these records. They're, they're, and they're, I tried everything. I tried every possible type of music that you could possibly, you know, in country music do and because I thought, well, maybe it's me. You know, maybe I'm not doing what they want me to do. But in fact, that was that was the real story, Dr. Ward. That was what happened. And um, finally, after four uh, of these boutique disasters, <laughs> just well, they were like having it was like having four stillbirths. Yeah, having four children that died. And uh, I was over it, and uh, Bowen was over it, and uh, they told me it was time for me to look for my options. And I thought, well, what options do you have if you're already too ancient to make uh, to make records with the guy who's the most powerful guy in Nashville? So uh, I went off by myself. There were some independent uh, people that wanted to sign me, and I thought, geez, if major record companies do what they do to you, um, and you end up not having any money. What's going to happen with a, a an independent that doesn't have that kind of funding? You know what's but so I just kind of went back and pulled back into my own thing and um, eventually uh, raised enough money to make a, a CD uh, in two thousand six. Well, I started it in two thousand three and finished it in two thousand six. It was called the Last Wild Place Anthology, and um, that. CD in 2019, 13 years later, because it had no promotion, of course, because I don't have that kind of dough behind me, uh, it became uh, for Strictly Country Music and the uh, Spirit Awards, the uh, CD of the year, the independent CD of the year. And the um, uh, one of the songs was the best well-written song of 2019. And it won the Pete Huttlinger Award for Musical Excellence, a 13-year-old CD. But nobody knew I was doing Americana, except the few people who I was able to get that CD too. But it's, um, it's a good life now. I have control over what I do. Um, and I can just have, I have the perfect, really the perfect, uh, the perfect life now. It, it's it's um, freedom. Well, you know, the thing that I can't understand is why would a record label spend so much money to produce a record and then not promote it? See, I, I love marketing. I love promotion. If, if I like something, you know, I, I interview tons of recording artists. If I like the album, I want to shout it from the mountaintop. I don't understand why these record labels stay quiet. Because they can because at the time that I was on Jimmy Bowen's label, he had Garth Brooks. So that was making gazillions and gazillions of, of dollars. They needed the write-offs and they just wrote it off. Oh, And that's how that happens. It doesn't hurt them at all. Of course, you have to pay it back. If you, you, know, if you ever get any play on anything, you, you never get anything for it. I was talking to Gail Davies the other day, who was the same vintage as I am as far as a recording artist. She said, you know, even the records that I produced, I've never made a penny. All the hits that she had, and as a producer in Nashville, she said, I never made a penny. And it's just the story, you know, I think probably country music came to that even slower than black music. I think that it, it has even, you know, I, I remember um, I've had songs that were, in fact, one of the biggest songs that I have ever written, the biggest that's had more play in the United States than any other. Um, I never got a penny for it. My goodness. Well, see, I was on Spotify and, you know, you have a couple of songs. One of your songs is 2.2 million plays. Another one's 1.8 million. Um, I think Take It Easy is at 200,000, which really kind of surprised me because I love that song. Um, well, actually, it's Black Coffee that's 1.8 million plays on Spotify, which 
Lazy, that song is fantastic. I love Black Coffee. I love it too, and I wish I had written it, but it was written by my dear friend Eben Stevens and Hillary Cantor. They wrote that song, and they brought it to me when I was really cold. I had had a hit, a really big hit in a really long time, and I said, Eben, why would you give me such a good song at such a time in my career? He said, because you can sing it. And so I did. And so it uh, it went all over the world as a number one dance hit. It became a dance hit. And uh, people, uh, <laughs> the record company, for some reason, didn't even make copies of it. People were pirating it like mad all over the world. It's like a big hit in South Africa, <laughs> places I've never played. And, you know. Yeah, I think, well, Lacey, don't you believe that with um, with record labels, maybe the most successful songs or the most successful albums are based on the fact that someone at the record company absolutely understands music instead of all of the accountants trying to run everything. I have to tell you, I have the perfect example of that. And I agree with you absolutely 100%. When we had the song 16th Avenue, the President, the then president of the record company, who wasn't Billy Sherrill, didn't believe in the song and really didn't even want it promoted. Jack Lehmeyer was the head of promotion at CBS Records, and he stepped out on his own and called every reporting radio station in the United States and said, this song, people are going to think this song is about their town. It's They don't know that it's 16th Avenue in Nashville. Don't even worry about that. And he was absolutely right. And if it hadn't been for Jack Lehmeyer, that song would not be the classic huge hit record that it was. But he knew what was happening to me. He didn't want it to happen. He and I were friends and um, he promoted that song. So he and his staff, his great staff at CBS Records, they really did a good job for me at CBS. Yeah, you know, I always, I really love people who will step out and, uh, and when, you know, to me, if you really truly believe in something, something can happen. And it's just people like that. I think we need more of in the music industry. Sometimes I, I hear a song on the radio now and I'm thinking, why did they release that? Because, it, you know, some of the songs just don't catch on. And, you know, to me, music has an emotional attachment. Many of the people that I've interviewed, we've talked about how the songs that they've either written or songs they've recorded have become memories for millions of people out there, including all of your songs. The same thing. You know, people will have something happen in their life and that song comes on the radio and they will always remember uh, that song, but also remember the memory attached to it. Yeah, I am especially pleased when they will tell me that, you know, they heard my song Survivor. And they were, you know, in a cancer ward and they didn't think they were going to make it. One woman came up to me after a show in Watsonville, California, and she came to the fence and I didn't sing Survivor that night, even though it was a hit. I didn't sing it because I just found out that it had been pushed aside so that someone else's record could be the top debuting single ever. And I knew if I sang the song, it would depress me in the show. So I was walking back to the, you know, to our bus, uh, to get back on the road. And this woman came up to the chain link fence and she said, Lacey, Lacey. And she was shaking the fence. She said, please, please talk to me. Please talk to me. She said, why didn't you do Survivor tonight? Why didn't you do it? And I told her, I said, well, I've had a, some disappointing news about it. And I know that it's not going to be the record that I thought it was going to be, even though it was the hot, most added thing in the first place. And people really dug it. Fortunately, it had a good uh, video that carried it on. But she said, you know, she said, I was in a coma for three months. And my friend played that song every day to me over and over. And she said, I'm alive. I'm awake because of that song. Don't ever not do that song again. And that's the kind of story. And that's not the only story with that song that I've heard, or some of the others that are, you know, hard times was another one. There were all through my career, I always tried to do songs that would do that for people because I know when I heard Why Me Lord by Chris Christopherson, it changed my life. When I heard his song, The Heart, it changed my life. 
that's what you want to do. That's what you want a song to do. And, yeah. and uh, I've been fortunate. Yeah, I agree because when you have fans that relate to a particular song and, and, and you're able to hear their stories, I think it just, I think it just makes, you know, the career that much better for, for artists. I mean, I talked to so many people and, and we get into that conversation where fans come up to them after a show and say, this is, this song means so much to me and this is why. And, you know, I, it was funny. I was actually listening to the song Survivor uh, before we got together on this interview. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is such, this is such an anthem for so many people. And to me, I would love to hear the song back on the radio right now because I think a lot of people would be blessed by it. Well, we sure could use it, couldn't we, right now? We sure could use a little good news <laughs> and a little strength. And that song, uh, that song just, it just absolutely did it. And that's not, I did not write that song. I was trying to write that song with a friend. And uh, he said, I know why we're not getting this down the way we want. I said, why? He said, because it's already been written. He said, I said, it has. He said, yes. I said, well, I didn't know that. And I said, let's hear it. Let's, could we hear it? And it was not, nobody knew the song. It was, you know, they hadn't had a hit on it or anything. They had just written it. Well, I heard the song and I thought, this is exactly what I want to say. And I, I got to change a few words so that it fit me a little better. And uh, they were really good about that. And I'm still pleased that, and I have so many stories about that particular song that um it, it that's what keeps you going you you know the in this business if you don't learn to endure if you don't learn you know it's not always going to be the mountaintops it's going to be that rocky ravine at the bottom where you can hardly walk that you have to get through and it's the people saying things like that to you that will get you through those really dark times it's just people saying uh, you know, I just felt this tonight. You made me feel this way tonight. And I was so grateful. And that's what, that's why we do music. That's why a lot of us do it. It's, um, it's a good feeling to, to be a purveyor of good news. Well, if you ever write an autobiography, I think your title would be survivor. <laughs> Cause I think it's just perfect. Well, <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> well, I, I think we both are, and I think it's wonderful, and I think the work you're doing is going to help a lot of people survive a lot of things, and particularly this COVID thing. I, well, I just cannot wait to hear your show. I am excited to hear it. I'm so interested in supplements. I have been for many, many years, and I believe, I totally believe in, um, you know, complementary medicine as well as regular medicine. Uh, well, yeah, and both, both of them can be used together. I mean, I have so many colleagues that are medical doctors that absolutely believe that you have to have the natural side to work with their conventional side. And, uh, you know, I, I always laugh. I said, look, if you ever get hit by a bus, you need to call a surgeon. <laughs> Don't call your nutritionist, okay? <laughs> you know, there are certain specialties that are perfect for certain things, and that's one of them. <laughs> Well, you know, there's just sometimes you need the white man doctor. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, I know that it's been, well, you know, it's funny because when your name is mentioned when it comes to music, I always hear the name Bonnie Raitt mentioned in the same sentence. Have you and Bonnie ever collaborated on a song? <laughs> Actually, we have not, but we've had the same crew <laughs> sometimes. A lot of my friends in Santa Cruz uh, uh, are do road managing for her and sound for her. And um, we, we don't know. Bonnie and I have only met, I think, one time. But I'm, I'm very uh, I'm very honored when anybody ever says that because I'm a very big fan of hers. I think she's a great artist. Well, I know that last year, twenty in twenty twenty one, you celebrated the fortieth anniversary of Everybody Makes Mistakes. What are your fondest memories of that album and the tour? Well, I think I was so surprised. Um, I was. I didn't think Billy would like that song. Billy was Billy Cheryl was my producer at that time. I didn't think he would like it. 
So he was in, I think he was talking to George Jones or something. I was sitting in the outer office, just playing softly, playing everybody makes mistakes as I like to play it. And um, he called me in after whomever it was. I think it was George. He left and Billy said, come on in here. I said, what is that? What are you doing? And I said, well, I'm playing this song that I wrote called Everybody Makes Mistakes. He said, well, why haven't you shown it to me? And I said, well, Billy, you like pop music. You know, you like big pop, you decorated my life. I said, I didn't think you'd like this. And he said, I do like it. And he and I finished that song together. And it was the biggest uh, song I ever had uh, play on in the United States. And I never knew it till two years ago. But I like the song. I like playing it. Yeah, I mean, your music is so fantastic. And... You know, to hear stories of, you know, the things that you've mentioned, like, you know, I didn't make a penny off that song or, or things of that sort, or producers not making money there. That literally irritates me so much because that's just not fair. <laughs> I mean, you know, the music well, industry. Yeah, the, irritate <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the music industry is the strangest industry I have ever seen. And today, more people can only earn a living by touring than selling albums because of all the way things are set up with downloads. And then when the pandemic happened for two years, nobody was touring. I mean, how did you, how did you, how did you, you talk about yeah. a drought? <laughs> well, how did you survive the last two years uh, due to the pandemic and not touring? Because my government was kind enough to offer me gig worker unemployment. And I was able to get that because I have a fine manager now uh, named Leslie Adams. She filled out the paperwork for me, which I probably would never have been able to get through myself. And um, I was able to weather that storm with the help of my government. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, we this is the greatest country on earth. We cannot forget it. Yeah. We cannot forget it. And we can and we need to be the greatest country. We need to conduct ourselves in a way that is great, always. I agree. I agree. Now, are there any of today's artists that you would love to collaborate with? Well, about 5,000 of them. I mean, there are some that are, there are some that are so very, very wonderful. Um, there are probably, oh, I would have to say at least... 15 of, of, there are some of these young outlaw artists who are kind of carrying forward that uh, outlaw thing. There's something about that music that kind of cuts through all the crap to me. I like earthy, rootsy music that delivers a, a message um, in a really understandable simple way and not real flowery yeah when the music starts getting really sappy and flowery i just i just can't do it you know no, it has to be no to i be agree real. i think a lot and i'm not going to mention any names but a, a part of country has got to be so pop that when you watch the artist on an award show you're sitting there thinking that's not a country song. To me, for modern day country, it's going to be people like Chris Stapleton singing Just, songs that that's country, you know, or mm -hmm. Luke Combs, that's country music. It, I, 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 just tend to, I just tend to like that stuff that's simpler. You know, not, not overproduced. I just as soon listen to somebody with a guitar and a bass I mean, I, I love, well, I guess the problem is I really am kind of a folk singer at heart. I played folk music for a long time before I got my deal in country music. That was also, that was pre the psychedelic period. <laughs> and, then, and, and it is now, again, I, I will do what is kind of, I don't know how you would describe my music now. People will ask me, is it Americana? Well, I don't think it. I guess it is. It, it's about the closest thing. I have a song called Scarecrow that I could not tell you. It's kind of Appalachian sounding. Kind of. 
Yeah, kind but of. If I had to describe it, I don't know how I would describe it. It's just what comes through uh, in a very authentic way from from spirit that it just comes through, and I it's not you can't put it in a in a corral. I never did like fences, and I will kick them down. <laughs> well, that leads me to my next question. Tell us about your love of wild horses, and how did you get oh. involved with that? Well, I've all, I love animals. I love all animals. And um, I've always loved horses. And uh, my sister, when I, we were young, had a riding stable. So I got to ride a lot of different kinds of horses and just always loved them. And when uh, sometime in my mm, early 30s, um, I bought a, a little horse. And that horse lived for 30 years, and we had a wonderful time together. He was a very spirited, powerful animal, and I loved riding him. And when I first came out to uh, work in Las Vegas and in Reno, um, I got to be friends with a lot of the folks that were the staff, you know, the people that were the sound men and the, and the lighting people and the promotion people and the people that ran these big casinos out here. And... I became friends with them. And so after I would do a stint in a casino, which just is, well, for me, after two weeks in a casino of three shows a night, you need to decelerate. So I would go up into the mountains and I had a friend in Virginia City who uh, I would stay with. And I'll never forget, we were sitting on her porch one night, right about dusk. And we had candles lit, she had a big pot of tea, and we were just sitting in this beautiful little Victorian house on E Street in Virginia City, which is a, just exactly how it always has been. It's the same now as it ever was. It's not been gentrified. It's, a, it's the way it was. And we sat on that front porch, and we were, uh, well, we were sitting in the dining room, and I heard this sound. And I said, Elaine, what am I hearing? And I'll never forget, she put her finger up in the air. She said, listen, there's a horse coming. And I went out on the front porch of her little Victorian house, and here was this little herd of four or five wild horses walking up E Street in Virginia City, which only has a few thousand people. I mean, it's a tiny little town. But here are these horses are walking up the street. And I thought right then, I thought, those horses can be wild and free and walk down this E Street in Virginia City. This is where I need to be. Mm. And I looked for years to find a place here, and be, and, and I was with really attracted by the wild horses. They had the largest uh, contiguous herd of wild horses on private land here, except for Indian reservations and arguably anywhere in the United States. And they're called the Comstock Wild Horses. And I bought a house here and 30 or 40 of them would go through my front yard every day. And I would see them in the, in the spring, this little beautiful stallion would come through with his babies. And I, I wasn't here very long before I realized they were in terrible trouble because like many of uh, wild animals uh, in our world, we are encroaching so totally upon their environment that they can't do their migratory paths. They can't get where they need to go to get water and new feed and, and uh, so on and so forth. And they were also hated here, pretty, pretty much not citizens that people liked. Um, mostly because there were people who were uh, leasing cattle lands from the Bureau of Land Management for very low prices. But, but before they'd ever get the cattle out on the land, a herd of horses would go through and eat all the grass. So you could see there could probably be a little friction. And the horses up here, uh, where I live, up on the mountain, the, the Comstock herd, which is usually about 2,500 horses, has been for a long time, somehow fell between the cracks with the law. It was not, uh, the BLM said there were no, Bureau of Land Management said there were no horses up on this mountain. They just weren't. Well, there actually were. They just migrated. And they actually stay here quite a bit of the time. So the Bureau of Land Management said there were no wild horses. So the responsibility for those horses fell upon the state of Nevada. And the state of Nevada had neither the money nor the manpower nor much interest in doing anything with those horses except keeping them out of the way of the cattle people. And they were the horses themselves were getting on the roads where they were a danger to the motorists and a danger to themselves. And um, I worked for a very long time with the folks that own the, uh, that have the biggest industrial park in the world called Tahoe Reno Industrial. Um, 
the broker for that park was a man um, named uh, Lance Gilman. Lance Gilman happened to be the son of one of the queens of the Pendleton Rodeo. And he loved horses, and he happened to be having a, an affair with the madam, the most famous madam in the world of the Mustang Ranch, which was, which was on the property of Tahoe Reno Industrial, this huge industrial park. That industrial park uh, was at that time 102,000 acres, and most of those wild horses like to be there. There's a river there that runs through, and lots of springs, and it took a long time, but with the help of the broker of that park who convinced the owner of the park that those horses might be a good reason for people to move their companies to that big park. Well, I read an article, I think it was in Atlantic Monthly, and in that article it said, international corporations move their headquarters to places that have three, I, I can only remember two of the things, but two of the reasons. One of them was proximity to wildlife and the other was proximity to brothel. <laughs> and so I kept selling this, I kept selling this point to them. And finally we were, you know, we were actualized because uh, Walmart moved in there. And the first thing Walmart did, they put this huge super and fulfillment center there. And on their great big water towers, they painted wild horses. Well, that was the beginning. And then people like Tesla, and blockchains and a lot of big companies moved in and became interested they came because of the horses not the only reason they got the best deal in the world to be there but they liked the horses and now they are actively supporting those horses and so our horses which were not protected really by anybody particularly not by the state um are now being protected by those big companies and by tahoe reno industrial and that has been a great and wonderful thing because they were the horses that actually started the whole movement to protect horses by the by wild horse Annie. These were some of these horses were the horses she was following a truck going to slaughter and out of that truck there was blood dripping and she knew that those the horses that they had rounded up here had been abused and that started her writing letters with all the school kids in the United States and they had more letters to Congress than any other issue besides the Vietnam War. And they passed the Wild Horses and Burroughs Preservation Act in 1971, which protected and made uh, 88 million acres originally available where horses were to be the prime um, form of wildlife. They were to be the, the pinnacle of wildlife. Well, sir, that didn't work for a lot of people. And I think, uh, Leslie, was it 22,000 that it's been reduced 27. to now or 27,000? It first got reduced to 55, I mean, 55 million to 27 million acres. And still, the Bureau of Land Management now is still wanting to take, they have more than 1,000 acres per every horse. 27,000 horses on 27,000 acres. 27,000 horses on 27 million acres. And they think that's too many horses. So that's our government. And I personally said, I, I tell people, I don't really want to make a, a statement because in my opinion, the Bureau of Land Management would like to get rid of all but just a few of the horses. It's just that the American public who voted for the 1971 act to protect them won't allow them to do that. And a lot of the big organizations like Humane and ASPCA and American Wild Horse are, are uh, fighting all these things in in in, uh, in battles and in, in courtrooms around the country to try to somehow do what the American people really want is to preserve some of these horses in a natural way on land that they should be able to have some of them on. You know, I, yeah. I just uh, it's a it's a very sad situation. Uh, I don't know that it's it, it, there are so many wild horses and their land the land is so valuable to um developers of all kinds for you know industrial developments and and so on uh, and ranches corporate ranching and so on we need a solution we um uh i didn't want to ever do birth control myself but i had to i didn't want to do that for my own personal self i don't really love doing it for the horses but if we don't do that we're not going to have any left 
and yeah. that is really how that is that is uh, my position on that uh, thing. If it's done properly, if birth control is done properly, uh, they can uh, immunize a mare for about six years, and she can still have some babies afterwards. So, uh, you know, three to six years is about as many times as you can keep a horse uh, infertile and not injure her. If you keep it longer than that, then she becomes permanently sterile. We always fear that if the government has the uh, control of it, that they will, oops, it's been seven years. Oops, we forgot. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I just, uh, I wish I could be more hopeful about the wild horses. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm glad there's someone like you that's uh, picked up the torch to try to, uh, to help them and to keep it going. I mean, 27,000 wild horses I mean, if you if there was no birth control, what it'd be what over a hundred thousand by now? Well, they're kind of they're kind of like rabbits, <laughs> so you have to you have to you know. I think that if it were done properly, although I would not trust the Bureau of Land Management, which is uh, has been called by the Government Accountability Office the most awful, <laughs> you know, not great agency in the in the in the government. Um, if they handle it. I'm not sure they would handle it properly, but I do think it's probably the one hope we have so that your grandchildren and their children and their children will be able to see these wild horses, which to me is a symbol of our American freedom. And, and, and we built our civilization on the bones of these horses. We conquered the West because of horses, because we had horses and guns. We were able to win the West. That's we right. owe them. We owe them. And I, that's how I feel. Plus, there's something about a horse. You know, all of your Christian believers out there will tell you that Christ is going to come back on the, on the back of a white horse. Well, let's hope we have one for him to ride. <laughs> I bet God already has that in the plan. And I don't <laughs> think we have to worry about that because, you know, I'll look forward to the day he comes. So... You know, we need to have that kind of faith. And uh, even though we all want to accomplish great things, we need to look for the coming of the Lord. And thank you for bringing that up, uh, Lacey. <laughs> and keep up the great work. But I want to ask you something. Is there any new music coming from you? Yes, sir, there is. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a project right now called For the Black Sheep. I've finished two of the songs for that project. And I have some others that I have recorded that I'm going to include. Uh, that haven't been heard because they're on uh, independent uh, CDs that have not been ever really promoted. Um, but it's a, it's it just actually is that sort of a of a CD um, to remind people that somebody's steering the ship, whatever you call that, however you come to it, that that's what's happening. It's not really a religious. Uh, thing. Yeah, I but think it's when you, encouraging. It's enlightening. It's inspirational, motivating. Well, we, we hope so. The first song I wrote is called "The Devil" by a different name. <laughs> <laughs> well, you ought to write a song called "Outlaws and Wild Horses." <laughs> well, you know what? That's probably a very good. That's probably a very good title. It'd be a great <laughs> album. You know, the album, yeah, album title would be awesome. Do you know uh, Willie is a big wild horse fan? Did you know that? No, Girl but I, I could see that. He has rescued many. We love Willie. I hope Willie lives to be 9,040 <laughs> years old. <laughs> and I think he should be declared, a, be declared a national treasure and never have to pay another penny in taxes. Willie yeah. Nelson is a great, he's a great hero to me and a great role model. He is a kindest man. He is the finest man. Yeah, I mean, you know, even when I read about the fact that you were the only female, I guess, half Nelson, I mean, uh, what was that like for you? Oh, it was such a huge honor. And it was such a surprise. I had no idea. I have a friend who's, uh, well, he wouldn't like me to say this, but he's a medicine person, uh, an Apache man from down in Texas. He's a Texas boy. And um, he said, Lacey, said, need to hear this song. And he played it for me and I loved it. He said, need to do this with Willie. 
And I said, well, I can't exactly call Willie up and say, I'd like to do this song with you. You know, he <laughs> he's pretty, pretty high up there on the, you know, I don't even know. He said, oh, let me see if I can get this to it. And he got the song to Willie and it had been written for Willie 20 years before by the writers. And they had given it to Willie and he had just finished recording. So he gave the song to Waylon and Waylon recorded it. The song is called Slow Moving Outlaw. It's a wonderful song. And my friend, my Indian friend got um, the song to Willie and Willie agreed to do a duet with me on the song. And I had no idea I was the only woman, none whatsoever, but I was, I'm so honored by it. It was, uh, they gave me a platinum uh, record this year um, to honor that. And I think that my kids are going to really like that. You know, I, I'm honored by it and I think they will be as well. Well, you ought to be honored by it. I, I think it's just a, a fantastic uh, thing to have. And, and to, to know that you sang a duet with Willie Nelson, my gosh, I mean, that's just so incredible. Now, are you going to be going on tour this year? Well, we tour uh, in, in little, we don't do what we used to do. There used to be a roadhouse about every three or 400 miles all the way across. DUIs put that right out of business. <laughs> so now there are lots of little um, uh, theaters. In fact, we just played a beautiful little theater in Yarrington, Nevada, just uh, Saturday night. And it, it's very hard. These theaters have a hard time. We're playing the Sutter Creek Theater down in Sutter Creek, California, and that will be um, April the 23rd. We're playing that theater. Um, and, we, and I'm playing with the Pops Orchestra here on July the 9th, so that'll be, that'll be great. But we, before that, we go on this cruise. But we don't tour, I don't tour like uh, I used to, which would be, you know, touring six, six shows or 10 shows, depending on however many you could get, and you're just on the road all the time. We don't do that. We go out in little forays. We go out or weekend warriors, and then we come back, and then we go on out. We might drive. I'd prefer to drive anywhere. I would rather drive 3,000 miles than fly an hour and a half. I I'm have, the same I, way. I'm the same I, way. Just, I mean, after all these years, when I was, I think, 46, I had a million uh, miles on one of the four airlines that I flew all the time. And uh, I'm not a fan of it anymore. It's uh, It's just... Uh, just, you know, just yeah. too confining. And I love having all my stuff with me and being able to stop. Like you can stop and see the you know, giant twine ball or you can go and <laughs> see the devil's, you know, the devil's post pile. Or you can stop and do stuff. You yeah. can see America. So that's the way we tour now. And it's really fun. I have a wonderful manager. She really knows how to find a decent hotel that's going to be clean and affordable and really nice and good places to eat and 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 touring is a joy now it's really fun well and, there, we uh, have a we have a place not but about six seven miles uh, from my place called Dosi Do's. um all of the country music artists go there it's just this it's this little house that they took apart out of kentucky brought it down here put it back together put a stage inside of it um I was talking to Joe Bonzo of the Oak Ridge Boys. They had performed there, and you know he laughed because the stage was kind of small, and he, <laughs> he elbowed his guitar player in the face that night. And I was actually there when uh, when they were there. But uh, you know they even have songwriter nights over there, and um, but they're known for having probably the world's best coffee. So uh, it'd be a well. great place to see you there. Well, you know, I'm sold. <laughs> you know, I wish we could get, I wish we got to Texas more. We did, we were just in Abilene. Uh, Mark Powell is a wonderful songwriter and puts on a lot of music down there and had me down for a songwriter thing in Abilene. And it was just quite wonderful. Um, we had a, a great time and a lot of great writers in Texas. You guys have a something about Texas. You know, some things about Texas I could di disagree with. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> What's, but the music yeah. in Texas is just always so authentic and so real and so precious. And, you know, and it, it stays pretty real down there. It does. I, you know, you rub up against those guys who are really uh, authentic and really saying what they think and really meaning what they say and walking their talk. You're not going to be able to get away with a lot of moonshiny, 
uh, stuff. You know, you're just not. So I've, uh, the, uh, the music in Texas, I'm 159% fan. <laughs> well, I am going to give you a personal invitation to come to Texas and perform. And uh, you are, you're definitely welcome to the state of Texas anytime, Lacey. And my goodness, <laughs> I've had such an incredible joy talking with you today. Right back at you. I have just enjoyed I had no idea that this was going to be as much fun as it is. I've really had a really fun time, and I'm, I can't wait to watch your show. I'll probably uh, well, be a well, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I can't wait. Well, I tell you one thing: when you when you come out with the with the new album, you're gonna have to let me know so I can have you back on the program, and we will do what is absolutely right, and that is to promote it from the tallest mountain and let the rest of the nation know how good it's going to be. <laughs> Dr. Ward, thank you so much. I'm excited, and I mean, I I hope you'll like the new record. I oh, I, oh, I know I will. I like all your albums and, you know, I've been spending so much time listening to a lot of your songs, preparing for this interview. And, um, you know, you got, you've always had what it takes, regardless what happens with the lazy music industry, not doing their <laughs> job. All I know is if I was there, I would have promoted you like again from, from the highest mountain. And, and that's what all artists who put out an album, that's what they deserve. They, they need to be heard. And they need to be promoted the best way possible. If you're going to put in the work, tell the whole world about it. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't have said it. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. The living legend herself, country music recording artist, Lacey J. Dalton. And as for me, you got to stay tuned because we'll be right back after this.